This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers, and I'm Carrie Miller. April is Animal Month on the show, a series of books and interviews about our relationship with animals, their perceptions, our emotions, their place and our place with them in this world. And we're beginning with an animal whose history and presence is deeply intertwined with the culture of Minnesota. Wolves once ranged the forests throughout the state, but by the beginning of the 20th century, they'd been pushed north into the wooded borderlands near Canada. As bounties ended, wolf populations stabilized, and today the DNR, which released a new wolf management plan in December, estimates that there are around 3,000 wolves. And those animals inspire fear, admiration, awe, and wariness in Minnesotans. Erica Berry writes in her new book, The wolf is a pressure point in our psyches. The real animal, of course, could not care less. Wolves have intrigued Berry, at times obsessed her, since her childhood in Oregon. And her book is what she calls a reckoning with the things that scare her. Erica Berry is a teacher and a writer. Her new book is titled Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. And she's with us in the studio here in St. Paul. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Carrie. I I can't miss this, that in the cab ride over to the studio, you looked up on the driver's dashboard and you saw what? There were a couple of those small plastic animals um, that were wolves. There was a mother and a baby, I presume. And I immediately talked to the guy. I was like, "What? what is your fixation with wolves? And, you know, he he laughed for a long time. And he was like, I just like them. He didn't have too much to say. He was Somali. Um, but he, he was quite tickled uh, that I'd noticed them. And I think one of the things about you know, writing a book about wolves for close to a decade is you do notice all of the wolves that are on the sides of RVs going down the highway or they're, you know, you're listening to a song and suddenly there's like wolf iconography. And I think realizing that we are surrounded by this sort of symbolic wolf or wolves that are not real wolves, right? Um, you know, you start to see the world through a sort of wolf-hued lens. I I, mean, I definitely have since I've read your book. I see them everywhere. And, and I want to come back to that idea of the psychic pressure point that you've noted in the introduction. So how much of that psychic pressure is because we've imbued wolves with human qualities? And you can see that in some of the cultural iconography that we were just talking about. I mean, is it, do we do that with wolves in a way that we don't do that with many other animals? I do think that that's really true. You know, a wolf as an apex predator and also as a pack animal, you know, there's there's a degree of extreme sort of overlap between humans and wolves. Both of them are known to sometimes mate for life, right? They'll raise packs, raise young collectively. You'll have a wolf pack, you know, the aunties, the older siblings are helping to raise the young. They're helping to deliver food. There's a real sense of collaboration and how food is procured. And, you know, that sense of sort of interconnectedness between them gives so much overlap with humans. And, you know, even I was just reading something thing about the a wolf pack territory can be passed on from one pack to another, sometimes mm. through generations. So throughout history, you know, humans have looked at wolves, felt this sort of there's this there's an ease of projection there that you don't have with a maybe less charismatic animal that's more ranges in a different way. And I think it's just 
you know, I, I think that one of the things about wolves is that they, they're they sort of shy around humans, and we don't see them all that much. And I've been thinking about their howls as a sort of psychic breadcrumb, <laughs> to use a little bit of a fairy tale reference, where <laughs> you're aware they're out there, but you're not always seeing them. You're seeing the tracks in the mud, but you're not glimpsing them, right? And, and I think that distance between sort of the imagined and that actual glimpse of the tail behind the tree, there's so much room for storytelling in that space. Nabokov actually has a quote, between the wolf in the tall grass and the wolf in the tall story, there's a shimmering Mm -hmm. go-between. That go-between, that prism, is the art of literature. And as someone so drawn to stories, I think it was that go-between. I mean, we don't have stories about cougars or mountain lions in the same way. You know, how much of the projection, though, is because of our evolution with dogs and wolves' similarity and, I guess, perceived familiarity because of that relationship. Do you think there's anything to that? I do think there is. This idea that – I come back to this quote that sort of popped into my head at one point, the idea of you're either with us or against us, and Uh that idea of – there's something uncanny about a wolf that maybe looks like a dog. People get pets that are wolf dogs and they think this is great. I've just got this cool dog. And then pretty quickly it will not behave in a domestic setting, right? Like that rarely goes well. And I think that sort of uncanny valley of the wolf, there's there's a wildness that we don't understand. And when you go back to sort of early stories of how there's there's sort of um, a range of theories about how dogs were domesticated. But one idea is that most wolves would have been afraid of humans. Mm-hmm. And it was the mm-hmm. wolves that maybe weren't afraid that sort of came up to us. And it's just called this trash pile theory of domestication. They sort of roamed closer to human civilization and were curious and picking up scraps. And so I think that also idea of fear on both sides of the species has always maybe been there. But there's also this like the curio- the mingling of curiosity and fear was really interesting to me with this species. Yeah, I mean, what I've read about that in reading the history of domestication of dogs is that You know, dogs would creep closer to the campfire. That's where the food was. That's Mm -hmm. where the warmth was. And they were recognized to be valued, right? And they were not seen as pests. They could provide warmth. They could be protectors in a way, I guess, that other... And they weren't huge in a way that I guess that bears or some of the other predators that were out there were not going to be perceived in in those ancient times. Does that make sense, do you think? Yeah, I think that the interconnectivity, there's a great book, The First Domestication by Raymond Purati and Brandon Fo- uh, Brandy Fogg, where they sort of talk about the idea that maybe there is this almost mutual domestication happening where mm-hmm. you would have, say, Blackfeet Indians looking to the hunting practices of wolves on the plains, the way that they were, say, driving herds of buffalo and potentially learning from them. And that's a really interesting study, um, I think it was 2017, their book came out, sort of looking at indigenous histories as well as scientific histories to sort of say, really, humans have been looking toward wolves and and vice versa, for, and sort of like co-evolving in a really interesting way. You recount these contemporary stories of communities where the people believe that wolves might take over the town once the sun went down, or, you know, they... Mm-hmm. They imbue wolves with these um, these kind of levels of sophistication and conniving <laughs> that seem, seem kind of odd. And you know what they reminded me of, Erica? When I was in the Serengeti, you'd hear about villages where a particular lion 
was menacing the village, you know, drawn by the idea, I would suppose, that there was easy prey there. Mm -hmm. But the tales would circulate that this particular lion had, you know, human motivations and qualities. And and I want to read something that you write in the book that I think gets to this. You say, many of our stories about wolves have been inflated for so long, it's a challenge to separate the being from the belief. So, so what did you learn about that as you were studying the way communities through history have reacted to wolves? I love that anecdote um, that you share from the Serengeti. And I do think, you know, one of the first things I thought about with wolves is um, this idea that the suffering an animal potentially experiences from a prey animal is not cruelty, like a predator like a wolf is killing to stay alive. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the baseline of where so many of these metaphors fall flat, because we read um, you know, I was, I was interested in constructions of predator and prey in both animal and human contexts. And I felt like these stories about the wolf were often sharing that. But the metaphors there do not hold if you understand that animal predators are, are acting in, in different ways, right? And um, I think understanding this idea that the animals we see are really beings in cultural frames. I use the idea of cultural taxidermy. I have an uncle who's a taxidermist. So having been in his studio, I was suddenly thinking about, oh, right, you've got the glass eyes from over here, and you've got the tongue from over there. And like, that's actually what's sort of happening symbolically with a wolf. And I think, you know, when I say wolf to even this cab driver this morning, right, there's all these associations, you're maybe picturing the wolf in the zoo, you're picturing the wolf from the story you were told, you're picturing the wolf in the headlines that maybe escaped from the wildlife park or that you saw in Yellowstone. And I think there's constantly this sort of pinging back and forth of associations. And I, I think with this book, I wanted to try to um, sort of reveal that that interconnectivity because, you know, sometimes it feels like um, a science book can't acknowledge the folklore or vice versa when really they're so sort of like mutually um, shaped. You know, I, I love the way that you are able to seamlessly intertwine the logic that we should understand about wolves and the emotional, the emotionality that overcomes a lot of our, our logic and knowledge about wolves. And I mean, and in doing this, we should say you were, you were kind of plumbing your own interest, I said kind of obsession at times, mm-hmm. uncomfortableness, right, with the idea yeah. of fear. It was, uh, it's a balancing act that uh, that I really think you pull off. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I learned something which is the most dangerous animal to a human and to a wolf is another member of the same species. Mm-hmm. And the next most dangerous animal to a wolf is a human. But the next most dangerous, you know, animal to a human is a mosquito or it's carrying, you know, carrying uh, illness. And I think like at one point I started trying to collate, like, what are all the things you're more likely to be killed by um, than a wolf? And the list is pretty extensive. It's falling vending machine, toddler that picks up a gun, (laughs) autoerotic asphyxiation, falling ladders, you know, lightning. Um, It's just sort of exhaustive cows, domestic dogs, of course. And so understanding that the wolf occupied the distance between sort of like the psychic territory that the animal occupies um, and the reality seemed sort of tremendous in this case. And I think in my own life, I was really focused on 
how to evaluate fear. And um, particularly, I think I was mistrustful of the stories I'd inherited about fear. Now, I don't think I ever feared wolves, but I did. My grandfather has a sheep farm in Oregon, and I grew up with a, a clear sense of I'm taking care of the ba- the lamb in the bathtub sometimes, and I really care about this lamb. And the coyote mm-hmm. came, and we, we lost two lambs. And I, so I, I sort of intimately understood how um, people could be afraid. We didn't have wolves in the area where uh, his farm was. So it wasn't that, but the coyotes, you know, I sort of, I got that. And at the same time, I felt like we've inherited these sort of rusty scaffolding that tells us the architecture of our fears. And um, so often the wolf becomes sort of a shorthand for that in Western, this little lineage of Western stories. And I wanted, I thought the studying stories of the wolf would help um, show that that dynamic and, and get to the, the clarity of what is actually like a more rational, um, how do we evaluate threat? And I mean, it just makes me think of one livestock producer who I was, I spent a couple days on their ranch. And one day we were looking at the motion sensor cameras that they had stationed around their trails. And there was a picture of a couple of wolves walking by and she was like, oh my gosh, this is, um, this is scary, right? And then the next image was a whole herd of or a pride of mountain lions like six of them or something and I was like now that's kind of scary and she said you know you're right actually I guess like when I'm hiking with my dog I'm afraid of the one wolf but actually like maybe it's this and I don't think my job was ever to say like we should all be more afraid of mountain lions but understanding like recognizing that gap um I, I love your your dissection of Little Red Riding Hood because as you've noted from the time we are toddlers right are somewhere along the line our preschool teacher or our our parents are going to read us the story of red riding hood and it maintains this this grip on our imaginations and i thought that was really revealing just the story i didn't know this until i read your book the story was first published in the late 1600s in france and it's remarkable that we're still hearing a version the kids are still hearing a version of it today. So tell me a little bit about about understanding uh, what that what that story has meant to developing this fear of wolves. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to me because I went into the story thinking I was just looking sort of academically at the subject of wolves and realized that in some ways this is a story that also creates the idea of who the wolf is supposed to be chasing. Mm -hmm. So if the wolf is a certain kind of villain in the story, the girl is a certain kind of victim. And I think that was where I started reacting much more personally to the story and thinking about the way that she was constructed as someone who she's the one who has to be told to stay on the path. And the wolf exists um, as a way to keep her there. You know, like I think so often the story made me realize that fear is sort of sold to listeners by someone in power to as a form of control, right? And um, understanding that. So in this original story, um, the very, very first versions of this tale was actually an oral storytelling from before that, that was sort of women, peasant women would tell it to each other. And there was a form of resilience in this and that or tell it to young girls. And in that story, Little Red Riding Hood actually escapes. She's basically in the house with the wolf. And she says, as they're sort of in bed, she says, you know what, I have to go to the bathroom. And he's like, well, do it in the bed, which I sort of gasped when I saw that it was just so sort of absurd. And she's like, (laughs) no, I'm going to go outside. And he ties a string around her. And she goes outside and ties the string around a cherry tree, I believe it is, and escapes, actually. And the wolf kind of tugs the string. 
and she doesn't come in. He goes out looking for her and she's gone. So it's a story about outwitting in this sort of mm-hmm. earliest form. And that became essentially like ironed out when it, be- it was sort of recodified by this French bourgeois storyteller. Um, and suddenly it was a story about teaching girls a moral and teaching a lesson and teaching them to stay on the path and to not talk to strangers. And, you know, the Brothers Grimm version that came along even later introduced the story, the idea of the woodcutter, whereas that first French version, she just died. Um, and I think I thought a lot about what the woodcutter the woodcutter becomes a hero, and you can't really have a hero unless you have a victim and a mm, villain. Right. Um, so it suddenly became like this story is representing so many of the dynamics that are really still at play in, in modern <laughs> society of these roles that people get slotted into. So, so what was the version then, the 1911 version that you found at the University of Minnesota when you were there for grad school? Yeah, that was a sort of picture book version. And the girl was described as sort of, I wish I remember the exact language, but sort of like hapless and and silly. She's sort of foolish. Um, and it wasn't really her fault, but she's just this bumbling character. And she ultimately... Um, does she goes off the path and I think one of the things that stuck out to me about that version was beautiful illustrations it was in the archives and she stops to look um, she looks at a squirrel in the tree she looks at the plants and that sort of scene is her part of her downfall that she's dawdling and that she's focused on on other things besides keeping herself safe and I think you know I love hiking I love being outdoors alone and it just seemed really um, it was a hard pill for me to swallow mm-hmm. that that was part of her downfall. And at the same time, I think the reason I gravitated back towards this story was, I think originally I just thought, let's just throw out the whole story. Forget it. It's mean to the wolf. It's bad to the girl. Like, we need something else. <laughs> and it was sort of recognizing that, well, some bit of this is helpful. It's a, it's actually a mother trying to dose fear for her daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's about mm-hmm. a grandmother who also can't protect herself. The grandmother's eaten by the wolf. And I started thinking about sort of, to go back to the earliest roots of the story, the stories that women tell each other and teach each other to try to keep one another safe in, in patriarchy, for example. Yeah. I mean, what what's clear, and in, in you're your writing about this, is how early girls are taught to absorb that the responsibility, that the world is full of predators. Mm-hmm. And that the responsibility for being safe is up to you. And if you, as you say, you dawdle, you're foolish, mm-hmm. then you've put yourself in the path of the predator. And it's your responsibility for it. I think we get that message, you know, from the earliest, uh, clearly from the earliest stories. Well, and I think the writer Maggie Nelson says a line that I quote about this idea that women sometimes you feel like you're born already dead. And I started thinking about that feeling of like feeling like you're born inside the belly of the wolf is sometimes an experience of growing up um, in an America for, for women, for people of color, for other minorities sort of threatened by these systemic forces. You feel like you're just waiting for something bad to happen. And that I became question what what does Inheriting those narratives um, does influence the way you walk through the forest or, you know, the the broader version. And I think I also thought about Little Red Riding Hood. In many stories, you know, somebody's killing the wolf or somebody or the wolf is killing the girl. And that idea of only one can survive. There's no restorative justice. There's no, you know, friendship. I mean, there's there's now retellings that, you know, um, the sort of reparative instincts. But I became interested in what that told us about punishment or justice, like the idea that um, 
one is always going to be the predator, essentially. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Erica Berry. April is Animal Month, so you are going to hear a series of books and interviews about our relationship with animals, our emotions, their place, our place with them in the world and in the wild, their perceptions. Um, we've got some really interesting conversations planned, but we're beginning with Erica and her new book about wolves and how our perceptions of wolves, our storytelling, our cultural iconography intersect with how we view and experience fear. The book is called Wolfish, Wolf Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. Um, I don't want to miss this. You, you have noted and you come back to this through the book about in so many stories, true or, or myth, the wolf just becomes the shorthand for fear. I mean, it doesn't even have to be explained mm -hmm. in, in some of this storytelling. What's your, we've talked about Red Riding Hood. What are some of the other places that you saw that developing? Yeah, I mean, I think my original sort of coming into this was the idea of the boy who cried wolf, where you have this this boy who's punished and Little Red Riding Hood, which is, and that was an, an Aesop's fable. Um, and then Little Red Riding Hood, sort of this punishment of the girl. But then there's so many idioms as well from around the world. And I became really interested in how many um, sort of, quick uh, little distillations of wisdom. There's one in Chinese that's when the rams lock horn, the wolf is fed, you know, to sort of something like that, that becomes this like political story um, that if you talk about a wolf, you'll see it. If you, gosh, what is it? There's a French one. Uh, talk about a wolf, you'll see its tail, that idea that you sort of what you imagine is conjured. And I think very often um, in these idioms, we see parents trying to teach fear to their children, teach them how to stay alive. Um, and I think understanding how much that resonates today, you know, I became very interested in, as journalism, um, lone wolf shooter headlines, for example, or the Central Park Five were referred to as a wolf pack on the front of the New York Daily right. News. And I think right. that sense of what is this saying? It says something about wolves when you have that sort of metaphoric conflation. It also says something about humans, and there's a real harmful feedback loop in both, you know, um, presuming that a wolf pack is going to be inherently dangerous to, say, a woman jogging um, is not true for wolves or for the sort of like the way that that was projected. Um, and I think I come back to this idea of a lone wolf because it's so interesting. And like when I always sort of presumed that a lone wolf like wants to be alone, it's extra dangerous. And yet the more I learned about wolf biology, a lone wolf is very often a wolf who's left his pack and is looking for a mate, is looking for companionship, is looking for new territory and food. And it's a very scary, vulnerable time in its life where it's more apt to be have territorial disputes with other packs of wolves. It's much harder to hunt, maybe eating roadkill. And I think that understanding of like the lone wolf goes lone so that he can find other people. There's actually sort of a poignancy in there that might actually be useful for thinking about human lone wolves, quote unquote, you know, um, mm -hmm. but understanding how wrong those uh, conflations had been. The other thing you're doing here, uh, as I've alluded to, is examining your own experiences with fear. And I have to tell you that some of the anecdotes that you shared, uh, it made me squirm. I mean, I was so uncomfortable in kind of the retelling, the unfolding 
wondering how is this going to end what what happened to erica is this going to end up you know being some story of then she ends up in the hospital or um we should what what should we say about this erica that these experiences that you've had did not none of them really ended in great violence can Mm -hmm. i say that no absolutely and i think that's one of the things that I became fixated on because I entered a period of hypervigilance in my early 20s, maybe, where I had had a few experiences that accumulated sort of splinter-like, I refer to them. You know, you get a splinter, you're like, gosh, that was a pain. You get it again, you get it again. And pretty soon you like don't want to touch the door that you got the splinter on, right? And that was like the metaphor for me just being in the world, I felt like. Like I didn't understand. I'd been grabbed on a street. I'd had an experience with someone trying to come into the house when I was in there and just enough of these moments that I I wasn't exactly sure how much danger I'd been in. That was what was sort of slippery and um, unsure. And I think I, I really gravitated to this French phrase I learned in my wolf research, entre et loup, which has its roots in Latin, um, that sort of the hour between the dog and the wolf when the, when the dog is sleeping and the wolf seeks its prey was kind of an early um, translation. And that idea of twilight being when someone's walking down the road and you cannot tell if the figure before you is a dog or a wolf, if it's familiar, if it's a threat. And in that moment, you're sort of evaluating based on the stories you've been told essentially about what will happen to your body and what this creature means. And of course, that narrative means one thing in a forest, but I realized that that uh, process of evaluating fear and trying to figure out if you're actually in danger, if you've actually been in danger, was very poignant for me when I felt like I'd had a couple, um, a situation where when I was grabbed in Minneapolis, actually, um, by someone, a stranger I didn't know, as I was leaving a brewery, a bystander intervened. It felt very little Red Riding Hood, right? Thank gosh, there's someone here. He he wants to protect me. <laughs> um, but I was sort of uncomfortable with that dynamic, of course, and I, I escaped, but later was really thinking about... Um, about the whole underpinning of that. And it made it hard for me to say, walk down the street in ways where I felt like my world was was constricting after this. And, you know, people that I would talk to will say, well, thank goodness, nothing worse happened. Or this is oh, mm-hmm. somebody reading the book said, well, this is a pretty normal assault. And I just thought those two words <laughs> together really say a lot. Like, what have Gosh. we normalized about the violence that so many people experience on very sort of like micro uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not the things that make headlines, but they do accumulate in a kind of sedimentary level to influence how we move through the world. You know, I, I don't think that any, any woman upon whom, as I said, great violence hasn't been visited, has ever forgotten the close calls. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you had, and that's what I've had. And you never, they are branded in some ways. It isn't that you think about them every day. But something might just, you know, bring them back up into your consciousness. And you think, boy, that could have gone, you know, I I woke up one night in in an apartment in my 20s and there was a guy silhouetted at the window. And he was much like a guy gets into your house. Mm -hmm. And even telling you about it Mm -hmm. gives me the chills. Mm -hmm. Police came, dude never came back, Mm -hmm. everything was fine. Oh, but once but, you know that that's possible, yeah, that you can open your right. eyes and see the person there, it changes you. And I, I, it was really helpful for me to actually talk to scientists. I talked to one um, 
She's a biologist who studies what they call the ecology of fear, uh, which is mm-hmm. sort of the idea that animals move through. Essentially, a, there's a psychological topography of the landscape where um, threat is different depending on if you're in an area with trees that you can hide behind or if it's open or if your head is down because you're drinking water, you're at more threat, right? So there's all these ways that animals move through the world. And talking to this biologist, Liana Zanette, who's in Canada, and her work um, applies theories of human PTSD to animals. And she was actually saying, well, you know, a body transforms, even a plant after chronic stress, an animal, a plant, a person, you transform after a moment of fear. And we form fear memories that have to be really, really good so that they keep us alive. Like, that's the point. Mm -hmm. And it was helpful to hear her say, she said, in my lab, fear is not an emotion. And it's, it's a behavioral response. And I started thinking that was that made it helpful, because I sort of felt like, gosh, I'm being, um, I'm having these emotions that are overpowering my life, I'm driving two blocks at night, because I don't want to walk to my friend's house, and actually recognizing, well, these are like these dominoes that are tipping over biologically in me, something's happened to me, it was sort of helpful to study fear in that in that lived way to explain what, um, what you and I and so many other people experience. I mean, I, I guess I, I think of them as kind of sleeper cell memories, mm-hmm. they lie dormant. I, it might go years before I, mm-hmm. you know, in between the times that I think about some of these brushes, these close calls. And then they come up, and you're right. You you cannot not be changed by that, or, or the uh, memories wouldn't be so persistent. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you know, there was a time writing this book where I thought, it's not, I don't, I'm not in it. This isn't about me. This is about wolves. And I was doing the research and I kept having these experiences while doing the research. Like I'm in a, a dive bar talking to a source and some guy comes over kind of chatty, trying to chat. And he's like, what are you researching? And I thought, okay, don't say wolves. It's wolves is pretty controversial out here in Eastern Oregon. And my friend was, you know, she's like, oh, she's looking at wolves. And the guy like a, a flip switched <laughs> and he got really aggressive and started miming shooting up the bar. And I felt suddenly all of this, yeah, he was mad about wolves, but he was also mad about a lot of other embedded things. And it began to feel like I couldn't write about wolves without thinking about the ways that my own even research process, you know, I think for so many um, women and people of color, and non-binary folks like uh, this sort of fear of confrontation is almost mm-hmm. like a smear of grease on the lens of your glasses that you're wearing all the time. Like it's always mm-hmm. a sort of subject and uh, taking a train to go to a residency to work on the book about wolves. I th- There was a man on the train who was I write about in the first chapter um, who was essentially sort of became stalkery and um you know, it, it was like, well, I guess I have to write about my own experiences with this because it's affecting the reporting of the project. <laughs> Absolutely. That guy was scary. That's one of the, the passages that really made me squirm. Yeah, and I think... And in the end, yeah, you were all right, but I'd call that a close call, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it came up against where I'm thinking, well, this stranger's showing an interest in me on the train, but I'm probably being... Um, maybe I'm being self-centered, maybe I'm being judgmental. And I I sort of refer to it as these two um, tethers or sort of like impulses of learned female behavior, which is on the one hand to like appease and please and like be conversational. And that's why I like writing nonfiction. I like talking to strangers and interviewing. So I felt the kick of that and also the like, well, you've got to protect yourself a little bit. And I didn't know how to evaluate that. And part of it was 
I don't want to move through the world believing that whoever sits down next to me is going to become fixated in a dangerous way on me. And yet that is what happened on this train. Um, and he ended up, well, I, I won't, I don't know if I'm spoiling anything. It it's, doesn't feel the wrong thing. But, you know, afterwards it did. Um, I felt like I had avoided something and my gut had yeah. been right. And no, I, think I think that, that yeah. you know, very often I, I was like, I don't know if we can always trust our gut instincts because they're sort of wired from a system that has a lot of prejudice, which is, um, you know, America uh, and the stories and myths and legends that we sort of inherit in our bones. And so I wanted to question those and also recognize that sometimes that fear is very, very necessary. You know, all those calculations and all that second guessing that you go through and describe in the book, I, I don't know a woman alive who hasn't had that experience where maybe you get on the elevator, mm-hmm. it's you alone, a guy gets on, you go through this whole split second calculation. Should I get off? Is this guy a threat? What, why, why do I feel that way? What mm-hmm. is it about me? You know, all of that mm-hmm. is amazing. It only takes like two seconds to run through the whole thing. And then I trust my gut on those things. Yeah, no, you do have to. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it makes me think of I was looking into sort of old legends of around werewolves, for example, in different countries, Mm -hmm. and understanding that sometimes these werewolf stories have been used as a form of first person testimony, they're sort of um, become these, these narratives of survival, where a woman talking about running into a werewolf, she maybe couldn't in a more traditional society, she might not be able to talk about sexual assault or pedophilic predation or abortion or miscarriage or any of these things. But she could talk about seeing a werewolf. And this thing happened with a werewolf. And that was really interesting to me too, understanding the ways that, um, narratives around a wolfish creature have been forms of of women trying to say, I saw this and I survived, or I went through this and I survived. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I do think there's something very important about being able to name these moments that are maybe very small, but that then other people feel validated um, by reading. You're listening to a conversation with Erica Berry. She's the author of the new book, Wolfish, Wolf Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. It's our first book interview in a month of shows about animals because April is Animal Month on Big Books and Bold Ideas. Okay, we haven't even talked about one of the main uh, themes of the book, which is the escapades, I guess I'll say, of OR7, a wolf that is collared by the Oregon Wildlife Authorities. And and he sets off in pursuit of a of a mate. Is it 2011 when it was? Yeah, he left. He his, leaves his pack. Left okay. his pack in northeastern him. Oregon in September 2011, and pretty quickly, you know, there were various wolves. He was the seventh wolf collared in Oregon, and um, wolves had been exterminated in Oregon in the mid 20th century. So people were sort of interested. They had not been reintroduced. I should say they'd wandered back in after um, a couple. Some were reintroduced into the Rockies and Yellowstone. So wolves have come back into Oregon sort of across the river and they're stoking controversy. And OR7 just started walking. And this is a normal thing for wolves to disperse and leave their pack. But OR7 was going really far. And pretty quickly, he was going, you know, hundreds, thousands of miles. And he became the first wolf in Western Oregon and then the first wolf in California since the species were exterminated. And I guess you could say just sort of a media... um, 
there be, the media attention, Newsweek called him the world's most famous wolf. You know, uh, one newspaper in Southern Oregon was following him saying, we're the, it's like the TMZ of the wildlife world. We're really <laughs> curious on his dating life because OR7 was looking for a mate in this part of the country, part of the country in the state where there were no other known wolves. And so um, there was the National Enquirer ran about him. There was a bumper sticker, OR7 for president. Um, Oregon Wild, a conservation organization, <laughs> created a competition to name this wolf. And children from all over the world were submitting names. And eventually the the name Journey won. Um, and the headlines were very much don't like, stop don't stop believing. believing. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, So I think he fixed, got, captured my attention as someone who hadn't honestly thought much about wolves. Um, I was a college student at the time. And, you know, on some metaphoric level, I too had left my left my family and was sort of looking for my way. And his his journey was somewhat captivating. And I think, you know, there's a sort of rom-com quality about the mm-hmm. narrative of OR7 that sunk into the public imagination, which was that eventually he did find a mate. And it was sort of improbable. I mean, the biologists I talked to were like, we were kind of amazed that another wolf and him did happen to cross paths in this area and that he wasn't killed by a poacher, a car, you know, it's dangerous out there. He wandered 4,000 miles in total. Um, And that mate that he found, people didn't even believe it. Like the one biologist I talked to said that we people thought we planted her to like make this a cuter story. (laughs) He was like, I wish I'd thought of that in a way, you know, jokingly. (laughs) Um, And so they established a pack that became the first pack in that part of Western Oregon. And for the next sort of five-ish years, there would be four to seven wolves in it. OR7 became a grandfather, which the headlines reported on. It would be like, OR7 bringing home the bacon to his grandkids. I mean, very (laughs) anthropomorphized. And then sort of the interesting thing happened in the last kind of uh, five years or so, between 2016 and 2021, I think it was, OR7's pack, and particularly offspring, were responsible for 40 depredation events that resulted in the death or injury of 38 cattle and two dogs. So headlines were sort of saying, OR7 was once this model citizen, but he turned his pack toward livestock as if he had this like plan. (laughs) And so I became interested in his story, both as a way of looking at how humans looked at wolves and also a wolf that both represented sort of the hopes and the dreams of a wolf as a symbol of wilderness and also kind of the messy stickiness of, you know, wolf habitat is human habitat, is cow habitat. Mm. And how do we um, talk about who shares that land, who is allowed to hunt on that land, right? Yeah. OR7 says, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Now <laughs> exactly. I've got to eat. <laughs> um, I, I found some... Uh, some rather excited television reporting about what happens when a female wolf shows up. We have the sound of this. It's a story from KTVL television, and let's listen. Remote cameras captured several images of what appeared to be a black female wolf in the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest. Biologists are waiting for test results from SCAT to find out more about her. We know the male came from the Amnaha pack. We don't know where the female came. We're still still pending results of some DNA work, and we won't know that for a few weeks yet. But uh, they're here. Whether they stay here or not, we don't know. So, Erica, that's amazing. I, I mean, yeah, I love the like every minute tracking what OR Seven's doing. Oh, absolutely. There were Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, and <laughs> I mean, I think there's a word in birding. Um, the idea of a spark bird is the bird that gets mm. you interested in birding. 
and I'm sort of an aspirational birder, so I've got my spark bird, but I really, I've been thinking about OR7, and I think for a lot of people, he became a representative of wolves, and I think even for me, sort of of an example of looking at one other animal's life so closely, you begin to care about both the animal and the species, and maybe like wildlife in general in a different way. He was sort of this gateway into thinking about the interconnectivity. Um, and I think in particular with wolves, you know, each wolf in a pack plays a very specific role. You'll have um, the wolf that is teaching the young to hunt or the wolf that is like, they they're, they're, they have personalities, I guess, for lack of, you know, for you, I think it's fair to use that term. And I think, you know, you see now when one member of a pack is maybe poached or even killed as part of a government um, operation because the, it's been bothering ranchers at some places that's legal, um, the whole pack might disband. Um, it's there's a social mm. glue between it's so it's not seeing wolves not just as population numbers but as sort of personalities and a family. There's like its own ecosystem there, and I think looking closely at Or Seven's life, for example, helped me begin to see that. And you know, Or Seven in some ways was not a superlative wolf. Yes, he traveled very far. He actually lived very long time for a wolf in the wild. He was an extraordinary wolf. I don't get me wrong, but there were other wolves that were doing things like that. However, he captured a certain fascination because of this collar and because people were following him and because looking at the sort of micro moments in his life, you get a window. And uh, I, I mean, I think in some ways, the way that I use my own personal stories in this book is I'm not like I haven't had this extraordinary life. There's been a number of relatively, you know, normal, quote unquote, moments, but that deserve a maybe closer look for what they tell us about how we metabolize fear. So I, I think in some ways I do um, look to OR7 as sort of a, a foil, I suppose, for my own um, growing up journey. You know, I, I chose this excerpt that, that I've asked you to read because I thought this was interesting. You're on a solo road trip and you've ended up at a campsite near Ashland, Oregon, and as much as at this point you know about wolves, you know, the, this interest, some of the experiences uh, of your own fear that you've examined, you get this kind of creeping sensation of fear, but you're telling yourself, no, it's safe. You know, you're kind of, again, you're checking with your gut, am I safe? What does this mean? What's this revealing to me about myself? What else do you want to say about it before before you read it? Yeah, I think in so many ways, this is a book. I, I, I think now that growing up for all of us is often a process of learning to live beside our fears. And sometimes that's mortality. Sometimes that's these external forces. It's something inside ourselves. Barry Lopez talks about um, fear of the beast, theriophobia, this thing inside ourselves sometimes that we can't confront. And so I think um, this is a passage where I'm trying to really talk to my internal sense and say, like, how do I calibrate how do I, how I move through the world, um, which is in some ways, yes, the project of the narrator going through this book mm -hmm. and growing up. The campsite I now pulled into was a quarter mile or so from an old farmhouse where a tanned, scruffy guy who smelled like pot and had two dusty elfin children leaping at his feet opened the cattle gate and pointed me down a dirt road. He padlocked the gate behind me, and it wasn't until I flirted with panic. Was this place horror movie idyllic? Was he locking me in or keeping someone out? That I remembered I had just chosen to sleep in a field of animals that should not escape. 
The campsite was sunny and mowed, with a hammock hanging from an oak tree and a picnic table, a wire fence separating me from a pasture with a few lethargic cows. I liked that the gables of the house were visible in the distance. It made me feel how I had felt as a child, sleeping beside Annika in that musty mushroom tent on Gramps' farm, knowing a glowing kitchen was a short jog away. Those sleepovers had been a sort of inoculation, training us that we could be afraid of the night and run inside, or we could be afraid of the night and stay, then find ourselves rewarded by pink dawn leaking through a leafy sky. Now I crawled in early, no rain fly, just a night sweet with spring grass and first stars. It was the first time I had slept alone in a tent in years. I sent a few texts, good nights, loves yous, pictures of another dumb, perfect sunset. Then I turned off my phone, even as the residue of words sent by the people I loved seemed to float around me, glowing. I hadn't bothered to bring that old keychain of pepper spray into the tent. If, by some freak percentile, I woke needing protection, I would need other things too, and wasn't I spontaneous? Couldn't I trust I would figure it out? I was drifting off when what must have been a bird flapped from a tree, waking me. Jerking upright, I took a deep breath, then told my howling heart to chill. Go away, I thought, but tenderly, as if telling a whining dog to lie down. You mean well, but stop. Sleeping outside foiled my instincts to solve night's noises and shadows, and I had forgotten that this was part of the thrill, humbling myself to lie beside the things I could not control. Now, in the distance, cows jostled for clover. A little moo. As my eyes shut, my breath steadied, joining theirs, warm and slow. Tell me a story about a wolf to help me fall asleep, said the child inside me. And so I did. Erica Berry reading from her new book, Wolfish, Wolf Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. So now I'm interested in what you've, what you've seen about whether human relationship with wolves is still as, I don't know, I guess emotional and primal as it's always been, or now that we're, many of us are living in greater proximity to wolves, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were enlightened in more ways about that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely is a sense of the wolf becoming perhaps more normalized in certain areas, right? It's more likely that people will have stories of, I was on a hike and I saw a wolf or I saw a wolf track and nothing happened, right? Um, statistically, right. people who live closer to wolves often understand the complexity and forgetting what the survey was, but it was sort of saying like people who are further from wolves are more pro wolf generally. And people who are closer are sort of worried. And yet like statistically in Europe, people um, living in areas where wolves have always been are more at peace with them. I'm thinking regions of Spain and Italy where wolves were n- didn't leave. Um, there's less fear than there was in England and the UK. Areas where wolves had been exterminated and in their absence, all these stories had arisen potentially, right? there was more fear about them coming back. And, you know, I think so much of this depends on, again, the cultural framework where we're meeting the wolf. I was really interested in stories from 18th century in northeastern Japan. There was villagers who would thank the wolf if they saw them because Hmm. the wolf was chasing the deer away from grazing their crops. And in that landscape where you're growing agricultural crops, 
the wolf is not the threat to your sheep. It's kind of the shepherd, right? The wolf is protecting your crops. Um, and that sense that who the wolf is in our narrative is different. Um, there was a study last year or two years ago from Wisconsin that was showing that wolves are scaring deer away from the roads. It goes back to that idea mm. of the ecology of fear. Mm. And so there were fewer car deer collisions. And the scientists put a number on how many, I I don't remember the money number, was it millions of dollars were saved. And also lives were saved because there were fewer deer car interactions. So that's a really funny example of like, how we read wolves in the ecosystem um, is much more complex than these stories, you know, originally kind of let us believe. The wolf is not out there as a threat. They're involved in this whole interconnected, intricate uh, web of interactions. And how about now that you have examined your fear, um, you know, all of these splinters, as you put it earlier in the conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, you've brought them back out into the light and you've examined them in the uh, comfort of safety, right, Mm -hmm. of knowing what was going to happen. So what kind of a hold do those incidents have on you? How are you thinking about the way you fear today? Yeah, I think about one quote from a high wire artist who said, um, fear is an absence of knowledge, ultimately. And I think Mm -hmm. this was an effort to fill that absence, right, to think really deeply about these narratives. And I am much less afraid than I was at the beginning of the writing. And (laughs) at one point, a therapist... (laughs) Just simply less afraid. It's It's just that's all it... You know, and the root of the word fear in Latin um, has the word ambush in it. And I think that idea that we are afraid of the thing that we cannot see. And part of my sort of fantasizing potentially scary outcomes was a way of anticipating the ambush. Like we can't be ambushed by something we're expecting. vigilance. Absolutely. And I think recognizing that um, and also learning how to sort of turn down the volume and say, well, actually, you know, statistically, these things or those things are true. There is a real value to that. And a therapist early on, I told her, I'm, I'm writing this book and I'm investigating my fears. And she was like, that sounds like you're fixating on them. I don't recommend. I think you should stop. Um, and, <laughs> really? you know, there was there's the theories that writing about these things that are traumatic, there is something sometimes cathartic that comes out of it. And I do think that um, that happened Uh, for me, I was sort of able to metabolize them in a different way and move past them. And I think visualize myself moving through the world in a way that was not just as say the hunted, or the prey, I mean, studying dynamics of predator and prey, in an ecosystem even taught me that one body is never just the prey, like being prey is not a a uniform quality. It's more of something that might pass over you. I describe it like a cloud passing over the sun and suddenly, you know, you can become prey for a minute, then you can become predator. And there's this oscillating between and both wolves and humans can be both predator and prey. Um, and that there's something sort of beautiful, I think, in being able to to recognize that. Do you ever wonder who you are then without this? Without the fear? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I think... I mean, one of the, another thing uh, that comes to mind is the idea that wolves are born fearful and fear is what makes them curious. This goes back to maybe, you know, the first wolves coming over to humans. There was a little bit of an evaluating fear. And like you hear a, a, you hear a rustle in the bushes and a young wolf will go over to investigate. And I think I've thought a lot about the ways that 
Um, sometimes, you know, on a body level, fear can feel like excitement. There's can be a little bit of adrenaline and a little bit of investigation and curiosity. And so I think for me, recognizing that I'm not going to live in a world where I'm not afraid, um, but how can feeling that sort of tug of unknowing or unknown can become maybe instead of closing in sort of see an enemy like what if it's a form of like looking outward or opening um, learning more about something there's something sort of beautiful in that erica berry's new book is called wolfish wolf self and the stories we tell about fear erica thank you thank you so much this has been such a pleasure